Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. So last December, about two and a half weeks after the Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou was arrested at Vancouver International Airport at the request of U.S. law enforcement, Canada's media was just still trying to figure out what this meant. Meng is a hugely famous, hugely influential, and hugely well-connected figure in China, but most Canadians had never heard of her before. And Huawei's feud with the U.S., I mean, I guess people knew a bit more about that, but not a lot more. Canadians had the basic facts about the arrest. But the media analysis of this international incident was pretty thin. And then an editorial ran in Canada's largest newspaper, the Toronto Star. The Star is usually fairly pro-Trudeau, but not this time. This time we heard harsh criticism and dire concerns from somebody who seemed like she knew what she was talking about. Somebody who seemed to have the context that the rest of the press lacked. Karen Wen Lin Woods was credited in the Star as the co-founder of a nonprofit, the Canadian Chinese Political Affairs Committee, 
And in her editorial, she spoke, it seemed, on behalf of her community. Her piece was titled, Huawei Crisis Has Chinese Canadians Worried? I'm going to read you some parts of it now. Many from the Chinese business community who donate to the Liberal Party feel their interests are betrayed by Justin Trudeau. They feel Trudeau has been blindsided by Trump and merely acted as his lickspittle. Nations have always spied on each other, she wrote. And she continues, the ramification and fallout of the Huawei feud could seriously harm Chinese Canadians. A new wave of Sinophobia makes many Chinese Canadians feel that they are automatically suspects. Now, many Chinese Canadians feel that they are sitting on the verge of a McCarthy-era reenactment in which they will be accused of being China sympathizers and become the subject of aggressive investigations. Their fear is legitimate. In a West rebuilt on Cold War ideologies and McCarthyism, there is likely to be little place for Chinese Canadians. So again, that was Karen Woods, writing in the opinion page of the Toronto Star last December. A couple of months later, Karen Woods wrote about the China-Canada conflict for the National Post and the Financial Post. This time, she was voicing some mild criticism for China. To the editors who published her, and to the thousands of Canadians who read her, Karen Woods seemed like a knowledgeable and passionate voice who could help us all get up to speed on what had suddenly become a major Canadian news story. And maybe she was. But she was also a lobbyist, working for a public affairs company that had been hired by the Chinese Consulate General. All of that has been reported by Vancouver journalist Ian Young of the South China Morning Post. And Ian Young joins me from Vancouver in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Mikey McLeod, Paul Weiss, Peter Brand, Steve Bonifero, Tina Nasiakos, Jillian Moyer, Sarah Crummy, and Nathaniel Mullen. Hi, my name is Nathaniel, and I'm a communications consultant in Ottawa, and I support Canada Land because it challenges my views every week, and I appreciate that. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. 
We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Ian, take me back to when you first hear the name Karen Woods. At that moment, who is she to you? Yeah, Karen Lids Woods is really no one to me at that stage. We're talking back in December here uh, when you see her name pop up uh, as the head of this group called the Chinese Canadian Political Action Committee, a community activism group, sort of a grassroots political activism group um, that's designed in a nonpartisan way, supposedly, to get Chinese Canadians active in politics. And she runs this very lengthy bylined piece in the Toronto Star talking about Meng Wanzhou and Huawei and all sorts of things related basically to Canadian Chinese affairs. And then I think after a short period, uh, Karen actually friended me on Facebook and I saw that she worked for Solstice Public Affairs and that's where I got interested. I uh, accepted her friend request and, uh, and all sorts of interesting things ensued. Tell me how things go from there. Within a couple of days, all sorts of people um, established that Karen works for Solstice Public Affairs. And it emerges that Solstice Public Affairs, in fact, a few months earlier, had been engaged by the uh, Chinese Consulate General in Toronto as their official lobbyist. Now, Karen denies that she works for the Chinese consulate, that she has nothing to do with this particular contract that her boss has. But her boss isn't so sure himself. You know, I interviewed her boss before Karen was really rumbled on social media and and by my story. Uh, And he was quite open about what he said, which was that Karen did, in fact, work on the China file. He said this in repeated contexts without any ambiguity. Uh, afterwards, she comes out and says, oh, no, no, I've got nothing to do with the China contract. I've never worked on it. And, you know, I go back to Craig, Craig Brockwell, and he says, oh, you know, he gives this funny sort of answer that um, yeah, he was mistaken. How do you make a mistake like that? We're talking about a boutique firm. And then he extends it a little bit. He says, well, okay, yeah, Karen did work a bit on the file, but really only as a translator. So what are we to, to make of that? He claims that her op-ed writing is a private affair. But at the same time, he says the op-ed writing works as client development for Solstice. Where is the line drawn between, you know, propaganda and lobbying and private activism and political activism? It's all very, very murky, but, you know, I, 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 I think you'd have to be pretty naive to imagine that there are hard and fast lines between those various activities. I mean, there's layers to this. You talk about how unusual this is. It's not unusual for foreign countries to have lobbyists for their industries, but this is strange for the consulate to hire a lobby group to be advocating for the consulate. Oh, indeed. Because, you know, foreign 
consulates and embassies don't need lobbyists because when they do lobbying, when they talk to MPs, they're exempt from lobbying registration. That's just the way it is for, for diplomats. It's sort of like what the consulate is. They're there to represent the interests of that country. So, you know, nothing to hide. However, if the Toronto Star was running a piece from the ambassador from, from China to Canada, we, we would know, okay, here's China's official position and we would read it as such. That is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the transparency here. Uh, th- this gives, the use of this lobbyist and, and, and Karen Lin's r- writing, gives China arm's length deniability about the way it is trying to influence Canadian hearts and minds through this media campaign. I think that there's also interesting questions to be asked about where the line is between her professional communication in Canada's media and her personal communication on social media, where she's even more outspoken, Karen, in facing criticism for her pro-China comments in the press. Uh, Terry Glavin challenged her, journalist Terry Glavin, with Post Media. And then she responded, not in social media, but I think to you, that Terry Glavin trolled her like a retard. Yeah, she is quite a character. She has another critic, Kevin Carrico, an Australian Chinese studies researcher, He gave you a quote saying, the confusion arises when she writes editorials like this one that essentially recycle People's Republic of China government talking points and then presents them as having been published as just an interested citizen. So then she responds to that on Twitter and she calls Kevin Carrico fat and creepy and suggests that perhaps it's time for him to hit the gym. So she's she's, as far as a lobbyist goes, I think she's um, uh, she sort of lacks a little bit in subtlety sometimes. Well, I think that a trend that we're seeing in in all kinds of communication is this question of uh, organic commentary or paid artificial commentary. And as unprofessional as she may seem, there's something to be said, and I think there's something of a history of if you're going to hire someone to propagandize for you, find someone who's already expressing those ideas or find somebody who, who seems to actually be able to be very passionate and outspoken and who's willing to kind of put their own personal name and brand behind that message in a rough and tumble, I'll take on all comers, social media ready way. I mean, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. I mean, was she caping for China because they paid her or are they paying her because she was caping for them? Yeah, exactly. I don't think you can draw that line. Once again, this is not to say that Karen Wenlin Woods does not hold these views. This is not to say that were her company not being paid by China, that she wouldn't hold these views. But the fact is that a company was being paid by China. The same goes for the uh, management at Solstice because they were writing pro-China stuff before they were paid to. Uh, and Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why they might have been doing that? Yeah, well, uh, once again, we don't have to hypothesize about why they were doing it. Um, I, t- I spoke to Craig Brockwell about a piece that Stuart Kiff, who is the president of Solstice, uh, something that he wrote a few weeks before the China contract came into existence. Now, what Stuart Kiff wrote um, it was published in post-media newspapers, um, and it was basically an attack on federal funding for Falun Gong-related Chinese language and ethnic Chinese media. It's written as a piece of investigative journalism. It's published under Stuart's byline. But then I talked to Craig Brockwell afterwards, and he says, well, you know, that, that's a private view, that's private writing. But at the same time, it's client development. And lo and behold, one month later, uh, Solstice is hired by the Chinese consulate. So, you know, I mean, the lines, I'm not drawing the lines. The lines have actually been drawn between these two events by Craig Brockwell of Solstice himself. 
That's incredible. I mean, that is so brazen. You know, the, the euphemism notwithstanding client development, what he's saying is we were out there trying to get this contract by not just demonstrating, you know, here we are with sympathetic points of view, but demonstrating we can get published in the newspaper. Absolutely. That's the key point. It's not. It's, it's all very well to have a mouthpiece. It's another thing to be able to actually say, well, we're going to get stuff in, in the Toronto Star. We can going to get stuff in post-media publications in the Ottawa Citizen. And they showed that they could do it, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it again. What did the Toronto Star say when you revealed to them that they had published this Chinese state propaganda? Well, the Star actually had published a clarification um, before I got in touch with them to reveal that, that Karen worked for a company that did work for the Chinese government. Now, they didn't say quite clearly that, in fact, Karen Wenling Woods is a lobbyist and she works for a lobbying company that is paid to do lobbying for the Chinese government. Would an editor have published that piece if they had to publish that caveat? I think not. You know, I mean, what's the credibility of, of a lobbyist writing something like that? What should the papers have done differently? What level of accountability or transparency did the star provide to you? How did they account for this? Right. I, th- I think part of the problem is that there is different understanding of the levels of credibility that these various China advocacy groups have if you are in the community and if you are not in that community. With Karen's CCPAC group, it was previously something called the National Education Society. Before that, it was under an umbrella group that was run by this China-linked businessman. And he's got a whole group of these organisations all operating out of a UPS mailbox in Ontario somewhere. There is a proliferation of various committees and societies that are supposedly organic grassroots Chinese organisations. But when you do a little bit of due diligence on them, you notice that they aren't really grassroots organisations at all. They have the fingerprints of Chinese business, people who are tycoons who want to curry favour with China, or, you know, various groups that have been linked, actually, to Chinese United Front propaganda work. If I were the editor of the Star's opinion pages, you know, I'd be very, very sceptical when a point of view like that, which hits all of these Chinese government talking points, lands on my desk and supposedly comes from a Chinese community group. Just do a little bit of digging and you can see the connections that exist. And, you know, Karen certainly didn't hide the fact that she was solstice in her other dealings, but the problem was she hid it from the star. Share the results of your digging with us. You mentioned earlier the United Front. What is that? Well, United Front is um, basically the propaganda operations and wings of the Chinese Communist Party. And that operates in many, many different forms. It operates in Canada through all sorts of supposed Chinese community organizations. The whole way they operate is to sort of depict themselves as simply Chinese-Canadian advocacy groups, when in fact, you know, they have connections, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, going back to the Chinese government. Invariably, you look at these groups and there are Chinese business people who divide their time between Canada and China maintain business interests in China and obviously want to curry favour as well with the Chinese government. And again, it's not to say that these are not firmly held personal beliefs, but at the same time, these aren't typical grassroots organisations in the way that most Canadians understand that political engagement. And I think the risk is that what we see is a misrepresentation of Chinese-Canadian viewpoints, true Chinese-Canadian viewpoints. 
You know, I mean, many, many Chinese Canadians are actually quite apolitical people. But a huge number of these groups um, promote things like uh, Taiwan reunification, uh, Tibetan prosperity, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Chinese business groups, Chinese quasi-cultural groups that use various issues and many on, on many occasions non-political issues as wedges to um, increase their own prominence and to increase their own sway within the Chinese community and to increase their own sway outside of the Chinese community, while also currying favour with the Beijing government because sometimes, as I said, the connections are not as explicit as you might expect. I mean, how do we square this? Like, there's a vulnerability, or at least, like, it feels like there's an exploitation of a sympathy where the press is legitimately open to hearing opinions uh, from Asian Canadians about anti-Asian racism. And I don't have to tell you, as an Asian man living in Vancouver, there's plenty of it. And there's a history of interning Asians during the Second World War. There is Chinese phobia in, in Vancouver around the effect on the real estate market. And so when these opinion pieces come out saying like, look, this is alarmist, anti-Chinese sentiment and individuals are facing discrimination as a result of the spread of this stuff, I can see at, on a certain level how the press would say, OK, great, we, we, we want to represent that point of view and, we, and, as, and as we want to hear that point of view expressed by Chinese Canadians. And yet sure, that, that's kind of catnip really for an editor, isn't it? You know, I guess for, so. for an editor yeah. over here. Absolutely. Um, oh, but at the same time, all I ask is that due diligence be done on these various groups. And it really isn't that hard. You know, a very cursory look at the provenance of a group like Karen's you know, Chinese Canadian Political Action Committee shows that it's not quite the organisation she depicts. It's not this grassroots organisation. It's something that that has a strange provenance. And, you know, as I said, she was a lobbyist. It was clear that she was a lobbyist. Those those pieces really should never have seen the light of day. At least not in the pub, not in the pages of the Toronto Star. I take a step back for a second and look at these attempts. And you know, we, we we've been focused on the Toronto Star piece, but as you say, there was a piece earlier in the Ottawa Citizen. I don't even know how the editors would have caught that one because it was before this policy group, uh, these lobbyists had even been hired. But the National Post also published something by Karen Woods. What is the point? What is the end game? for the Chinese consulate in trying to drum up the sympathy? What does it get them if the Canadian population starts to feel the same way? Well, they want to use um, you know, the Chinese diaspora as a tool for their own policy endeavours. We can see the impact of it. You know, We can see, uh, for instance, when you attend Meng Wanzhou's various court hearings, there's always quite a big contingent of people out there and some of them are, you know, no doubt they are expressing heartfelt beliefs when they support Meng Wanzhou and they support Huawei and they support the Chinese government. But on the other hand, quite often it's organised by groups that have explicit or implicit links back to the Chinese government through these united front groups. This is nothing short, really, of a political endeavour in Canada by the Chinese government. The end game, really, I think, is to try and win over large swathes of the Chinese diaspora here as a way of influencing politicians here in Canada and to influence policy. There's always been this depiction of the supposed Chinese vote, particularly in places like Canada, where I'm not convinced that something like the Chinese vote actually exists as a monolithic thing that can be won over. But that is a very um, uh, seductive concept to a politician local politicians here in Canada and in Vancouver fall for it 
with these Chinese community organisations, they see it as a very seductive thing to have the whole, have the possibility of winning over the supposed Chinese vote. We had a great example of it a couple of years ago where um, local councillors got up and raised the Chinese flag in front of Vancouver City Hall and put on little red scarves, which are worn by communist youth. You know, there, there is no doubt about what those scarves represented among the Chinese community. But there was a level of ignorance among politicians here. And this was organised by um, something called the Canadian Alliance of Chinese Associations, which is a classic group of Chinese businessmen trying to curry favour with, with the Chinese government. Would you say that that's an ignorance that's shared by the Canadian media? Yes, absolutely. I think that there are um, there are these blind spots. There is um, a tendency to view the, the story of the Chinese community here as one of oppression and racism, and it is. But at the same time, there is another story, a story about the Chinese government and uh, Chinese government influence, which is a different story. And that story sometimes gets underplayed. I think that, you know, it's extraordinary to a lot of people to imagine that our newspapers could be co-opted, could be really hijacked for state propaganda in this way. Uh, And yet, if you know as you and I do, what like the state of financial affairs of the press, fewer resources than ever to commission original content, fewer resources mm. than ever editorially to fact check and vet content, the same pressures as always to pump out content every day. And there are opportunities for deep-pocketed interests to, to get in there. If you think about the Canadian media as an industry and what it's worth and what kind of shape it's in, and then you think about the kind of economic shape that China is in, what, you know, what chance do we have? If, if they want to you know, purpose our uh, media platforms towards their message, I kind of feel like they're going to be able to. Well, I mean, they have succeeded to an extent with these couple of pieces. This is, I think, though, the thin end of the wedge. When you look at some of the other pieces... Uh, one of the pieces that Karen wrote was tr- really attempted not specifically to put forward a Beijing point of view, but to improve the standing of her Chinese-Canadian Pol- Political Action Committee with various editors and what have you, so that their op-eds will be looked upon kindly. Oh, these people, are, you know, they've got an interesting point of view. And, sh- and Karen Wenlin-Woods has been everywhere. You know, it's not just these pieces. She's all over broadcasters as well. Uh, she appears on CB- She's been on CBC a, a number of times presenting what are supposedly uh, Chinese-Canadian points of view. Uh-huh. Um, during the time, you know, it, I mean, I, I, maybe it doesn't oh, matter, yeah, yeah. but during the time that Solstice had this contract? Oh, yeah. Recently. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Recently. Would you have a lobbyist on? Would you have a lobbyist on to sell their, their client's point of view? No, you wouldn't. Would you have a community activist, a grassroots community activist fighting against sinophobia on the CBC? Yeah, you kind of would. And that's what she's exploiting. I think there is a very well-meaning intent behind it from broadcasters or publishers or whoever who want to get a diverse range of views, which is an entirely laudable thing to do. But China knows that. China's, um, you know, smart enough to realise that this is a way to get in on this issue and that Canadian concerns that relate to identity politics and, you know, racism and things like that are, um, you know, very viable ways of getting into a conversation. In fact, we saw it in quite a clumsy way from the Chinese ambassador. I think he gave a media briefing where he said that the treatment of Meng Wanzhou and, and the treatment of Huawei demonstrated white supremacy right. by Canada. Now, that was a little bit clumsy, 
But at the same time, you can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to weaponize Canada's quite rightful concern about issues of white supremacy and racism for his government's own ends. Have you experienced this yourself? You, you've been filing these stories for the South China Morning Post, very popular blog, Honkouver. We've had you on before to talk about it. You have been presenting points of view that probably any white Canadian journalist would be skittish about putting out there, lest they be accused of anti-Asian prejudice. I doubt that has insulated you from criticism. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of responses you've received for your journalism? Yeah, I mean, I think there is an assumption that because I work for a, a newspaper that is based in Greater China, we have a mainland Chinese owner, we've got Jack Ma from Alibaba is, is, is my boss, that there is going to be some sort of um, subtle influence on my reporting. I don't think there has been, at least. <laughs> if there is, then I haven't detected it. Um, I think I'm pretty gung-ho in the way that I report on China and the Chinese government and infl- issues like this. But yes, there has been criticism that we take things too far that, um, you know, by having this strong focus on, on China, that in itself is um, somehow racist. But on the other hand, you know, I work for a Chinese newspaper whose readers are very largely ethnic Chinese who are very largely interested in what other ethnic Chinese people are doing. I do take the criticism with a grain of salt. You know, I'm always very wary not to cross any lines um, with my reporting, um, uh, lest it be construed as ethnically based now our readership though is ethnically based you know i I can't deny that the readership of the south china morning post is very largely ethnically chinese and so i'm going to write about chinese issues and those issues you know they're they're important you know these are important issues not just for the chinese population though for for greater canada for the broader canadian population and i think that the media here does itself a disservice if it steers clear of those sort of issues particularly when they Uh, relate to the Chinese government activities because they fear that they might be construed as racist. Before I let you go, I think that there is something else that we should should maybe close on, which is that while we're talking about this, two Canadians are still being held in China. They're basically political prisoners, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. Uh, I think there's, what is it, a 98% conviction rate uh, in China? Yeah, Uh, more more than 98%. I think it's 99.9 something. How is that story perceived by your audience in China versus your audience in Canada? I think that there are few people here in Canada, even among the, the Karen Wenlin Woods of the world, who can find this a defensible thing. To be fair to her, she's actually made public statements that they should be freed. Absolutely. And and I, I don't have any reason to believe that, that Karen Wenlin Woods thinks otherwise. To, you know, I, I've not heard of people applauding the arrests of Spavel and Kovrig. But on the other hand, yeah, you know, you don't have to look far in the comments fields of the South China Morning Post or other other organisations that are based in Greater China to see people, yes, people are applauding um, the arrests of Spavel and Kovrig. You know, there's a really uh, strong wave of nationalist fervour going on in China that um, the rise of China as a whole is kind of payback for, you know, a century of humiliation um, that the Chinese people suffered at the hands of colonial powers. So there's a much, much bigger story here, a much, much bigger his, bigger history behind this. Um, and the Spavor and Kovrig detentions are kind of shrugged off by those people. But I haven't seen it here in, among Chinese Canadians. Ian, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for your time.
That is your episode of Canada Land for this week. I hope you liked it and you can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com where you will find this week the next episode of Commons' new series on crude, incredible and shocking stories from Canada's oil obsession. The numbers on this show have just jumped dramatically. People are figuring out that this is an excellent top quality show. If you are not among one of Commons' new listeners checking out the new season, binging the last one on corruption in Canada, don't sleep on this. Check out Commons' new episode this week. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication of Canada Land is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, if you want to support what we do, we will give you ad-free versions of our podcasts. As a sign of our gratitude, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Canadaland. We do rely on your support. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.